Hey, one more thing before you go. What happens when you put a psychic detective, a police detective, and an unsolved murder in the same room? You get Nancy Orlin Weber. After dedicating herself to healthcare and spirituality, she took an unexpected turn after a traumatic event not only left her with a permanent disability, but also ignited a profound shift in her perspective. She became a psychic detective, working with both people and animals. We're going to talk about that in a very unique way. And we're going to show you the possibility of unlocking your psychic insights and spirituality for you to do the same. I'm your host, Michael Hurst. Welcome to One More Thing. Before you go... My guest in this episode is Nancy Orlin Weber. She's a psychic detective and author who has worked as a consultant to law enforcement agencies for over 40 years. She has written a book titled The Life of a Psychic Detective, which is an autobiography that details her experiences and techniques for finding missing persons and evidence related to crimes. Weber also has received endorsements from detectives she's worked with and has been featured on multiple television documentaries about her work, which continues to be shown worldwide. Her book also discusses the personal spiritual journey as a psychic and how it has influenced her work as a consultant to law enforcement. Nancy's second book, which I'm really excited about as well, All Nature Speaks Conversation with Pets and Wildlife, is a book that <clears throat> excuse me, is a book that celebrates the interconnectedness of all living beings and encourages readers to explore the idea of communicating with animals. The author, Nancy, shares her personal experiences of communicating with animals and how it has helped her connect with nature in a deeper way. And welcome to the show. Thank you, Michael. It's a wonderful opportunity to hear you and learn you know, more. I'm always... I, I'm very grateful for connecting with you. I, I think what an amazing journey you've had in your life. And I think, you know, transforming people's lives in a very positive way, getting people closure in life, I think is a very important facet mm. that we all seek, especially when we've lost someone and, and or whether or not we've lost a pet. Or I love the aspect of being able to communicate with pets. I talk to my dog all the time. I think he talks back to me. At least I feel I was it. going to ask you that <laughs> one. Do you know what he actually says? So thanks. I do, actually. I do, actually. We'll talk about Good. that. Um, but yes, I think uh, what an amazing and remarkable journey your life has been from, uh, uh, and I know it, it, there's been some obstacles in your way, um, mm -hmm. but you've learned to overcome those obstacles and you've, you've really created an environment for healing all, uh, in totality. So I'm grateful you're here. Thank you. I think everything is first about self-healing, you know, that's first and that becomes a model. It's like, I think when you were working in law enforcement, how you treated everybody served as a model for everybody around you. It's, I, yes, I agree with that. I, I, thank you for saying that. I think that as a police officer, I love, I love my job as a cop. I love my job mm -hmm. on the beach. I love parking the car and walking around and talking to people in the shops. And you know, I did the, the, the original version of community-oriented policing where mm. I would park the car, walk around mm. and talk to people and to sit on the park bench, not to eat donuts. <laughs> Although <laughs> occasionally I indulge 
in a bagel. <laughs> I was a bagel cop, not a donut cop. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, I, love I was very surprised. And one day where I was working with a federal agency, we were driving around, they stopped for coffee and donuts. I don't eat that. And then I go out to the West Coast and work with some others. And they go to Starbucks and have organic tea. <laughs> and a scone or something. <laughs> organic teas in this cup right here. I've continued that Me? tradition. <laughs> uh, this is organic tea. <laughs> in, a, in a brilliant cup. <laughs> Figment uh, of your imagination. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, I, I hmm. love to start at the beginning. So if, um, sure. I'm going to kind of unfold you a little bit and present uh, the real you, if that's okay. Uh, sure. It's like... Uh, <laughs> doing but, yoga, unfolding me, very interesting. <laughs> what a unique perspective. I, I'm going to have to use that in the future. <laughs> Let's start. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Brooklyn, in what they called at that time the East Flappish area. And uh, in one place, and then at age six, we moved to our little home that I finished growing up in. And did you, what was your family like? Oh, well, let's see. My father was non -talk, not talkative. Uh, he worked hard. He was an engineer without a degree, fourth grade education, very abused by his father. And so he was very careful. Uh, I look at it and go, well, he protected my mother who could do anything she wanted to anyone and with anyone. Uh, her mouth would go uh, screaming, multiphobic, but everything was okay with him as long as that history in him where his mother would take some of the beatings for him. And I believe that was that. So I grew up in a strange environment, I'd say, where he wouldn't speak with me because she told him my eldest sister was his and I was hers. She was very controlling, obviously, and smothering and demanding. If I didn't do it her way, I wasn't going to get anywhere. And that was, and she was terrified of everything I said uh, when I picked up things, information, and said them out loud. She would tell me to shut up and go to your room. So that, that's primarily in a nutshell. Do you have any siblings, any brothers, sisters? I had, I had an older sister, Anita, who was the light of my life growing up. She would protect me from my mother. If my mother went to smack me, she would say, I'm going to tell daddy. <laughs> like my mother cared, but she didn't smack. She was, she knew Anita would, Anita would take me to movies and do all kinds of things with me, five and a half years older. Only she had unfortunate history as a child and ended up with paranoia and dementia and died of that after about 15 years. I think she was institutionalized and would not speak with me. So her adult life was very different, but I always understood it came from such pain. She couldn't remember what happened. I remembered and I was one mm. when she was six and a half. I could still see it in my mind, what happened to her. And she suppressed it. My mother refused to talk about it. My father refused to talk about it. And that's, I think, part of the seed 
that made me very yeah. curious about abnormal behavior. That, that you know, it, it is, I, I learned a, a word a few years ago uh, called intergenerational trauma, uh, where it's carried forward. And, and, you know, I grew up in yeah. a very dysfunctional family myself, and, you know, both my parents were alcoholics, and, and um, mm. there was other dysfunction in there as well, domestic violence sure. and, and such. It, it actually pushed me into being a cop, uh, into law enforcement, coming from that environment, um, which I'm grateful for. But, mm. you know, it gave me an opportunity to come out, come out on the positive end. Um, but in, in understanding, the older I got, I was able to kind of start understanding more about intergenerational trauma and how it is passed down. I didn't know much about my grandfather, didn't know much about my great-grandfather and my great-great-grandfather until I started digging into it, but I was, see, we're giving our ages away now. I mean, you're still very, <laughs> you're still really, really young, so am I. <laughs> we're both young, mm. young, young, youngsters, we'll call us. Um, yeah. So we'll say, I didn't, I didn't really figure it out until about 50 years later. And, and it, it took me a long time to really come to a full understanding of intergenerational trauma sure. and how it plays out, especially in mental health these days. Mm. So I'm sorry that you had that you had, had gone through mm. that and your sister had gone through that. No. I think you know, I look back at that in sixth grade over certain things that happened. I was allowed to go by the director of the Brooklyn State Mental Institution to walk the grounds and question people. Mm. I wrote a thesis on the history of insane asylums, ten years old. Wow. I I think yeah, I it sounds like a wow, but part of me was absolutely fascinated by what makes us do what we do. Well, it's an interesting subject. Yeah. And so because I would blurt out things that were true or come true or know when people died, the moment they died or that they were going to die a year from now as a child, uh, I found that it was so curious because by the time I was 10, I had several episodes of that that were so strong and and the people around reacted so strongly that i had to know what is this so people who are listening i want you to consider the times that you get these ahas out of what you think is nowhere we can train to turn that switch on or off so that we're not bombarded with things and blurred out, <laughs> you know, the no filter. That was me as a child about those things. And otherwise I would be not talking at all. I was shy, I was embarrassed. And, but when I blurted out things that were true and came true one way or the other, or knew about somebody's past and there was no way I could find that out, that's the curiosity. That's the seed that can either bring us to our knees, right? Or it can bring us into an experience of, oh, so that's what they all say in every philosophy and religion. The soul, the soul. Oh, so that's what they mean. There's more of us than we know in our conscious mind. And that's why I do it. That's that's brilliant, actually. I think that especially from a young age and being able to recognize that 
aspect of everything. And I mean, a thesis like that with that subject matter at that age is, I think, the universe talking to you flat out. Oh, yeah. But it's also when you have trauma, and I had trauma that year, seriously, <clears throat> right? Uh, I look at it as uh, maybe being a female, because the trauma was being a female at 10, being molested by my teacher. Uh, you look at it, I wanted to know, okay, what the insane asylum, because I walked the grounds, there were males, females, it's a, and I looked up the history. But towards 1930, from hundreds of years of the growth of insanity, word, and thought, and the Manufacture of Madness by Dr. Thomas Sott was a treatise on the history of village healers, female, turned into when that didn't work because it took money from the doctors, they named them uh, insane or, or witches. They burned them, obviously. In, this, in France, they recorded everything. It's a, a history of it. And then when that didn't work, they built the insane asylums. And most of it was for females. So I've always been curious about what that's about. I, I think that we all should be more curious about what that's about because I, mm. dare I dare I say, I think I see a lot of um, us mm. falling back about 50 yeah. or 60 years in time, especially when it deals with the alma Absolutely. father of two beautiful, intelligent oh. young women that stand on their own two feet. They're strong. They're, they're smart. You know, they have fortitude. They have their, their own minds, and we have taught them to be that way. And I think that um, when you look at what's going on in the current environment in today's society and culture, especially in this area, um, they're reverting mm -hmm. back to a, a Handmaid's Tale environment. And I, oh, yeah. I, I just don't understand it. I, I worked domestic violence in, in the police department. Mm -hmm. I was on a domestic violence task force. And um, you coming in from in, in knowing the law enforcement arena, you know, it, but to help us, uh, others understand. A task force is usually comprised of several different agencies, not just one. And mm -hmm. that task force is dedicated to working crimes together. They combine right. their experience, their, their whatever happens to be their academic, whether it be physical experience or academic experience, and their skills in order to take on like the worst of the worst. So I did that with the domestic violence task force. It was a multi-agency mm -hmm. one. And we worked the not that any domestic violence is good, but we worked the worst of the cases of the domestic violence. And in watching that and getting more in depth with that environment, it opened my eyes a little more than to what I was just exposed to as a child growing up sure. with my parents. And in doing so, it, it also gave me more empathy and compassion and understanding from many, many perspectives, because the majority of that type of domestic violence is done against yeah. women. Although there are women that still yeah, do against both. men. Um, uh, yeah, not as much, but there's <clears throat> both. But yeah, there is. Sure. But so, think about this, Michael. Indigenous quote, men go up to thunder, women go down to rain. Men have to come down from pride, women have to come up from shame.
So I luck, you know, when people go, well, why, why is this still going on? And, and I go, excuse me, think of earthquakes, tsunamis, caves, cave dwellers early on. Cave gets ruined. Man picks up stone, goes to his neighbor's cave, crushes that person to get that cave. It's been going on forever. It hasn't stopped. But ultimately, when I look at the why, there's a funny thing about control. And we don't know what makes the difference between different men. We'll take men as an example of they cannot give birth. So there's a loss of control as soon as they understand that they cannot give life. And I believe that that can be either very positive and make them into humanitarians and great gratitude givers and, and humility, or it can make them furious at not having control. Interesting. And who knows why, but I think the same thing with females being controlled by men, because I want the rules <laughs> worldwide, but we'll start with our nation. I want men having the same exact amount of law made about their bodies in total, everything that you have for women. I agree. Women are not supposed to be second class. Blacks are not supposed to be second class. Latinos are not supposed to be second class. Filipinos are not supposed to be blah, 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 blah. No one is second class in a country that's supposed to be United States of America with the Statue of Liberty talking about freedom. You're, you're preaching, yes, that's- Yeah, I know. No, say that's 100%, yeah. absolutely. That's 300%, I agree with that, 300%. Well, no, let me share a little wonderful tale. Uh, I was giving workshops for the International Women's Writing Guild, Saratoga Springs Kidmore College every year for one week. Uh, we would all do this, mine was, on creativity and, and the intuition and psychic tuning in so that they were more focused. They were all authors, publishers, editors, etc. So I'm telling the story before I wrote any books, telling a story about my first husband attempting to strangle me and how I faked death and how I survived, etc. I was pregnant, five months pregnant. Okay, so finished my story and a woman raises her hand, gets up, Barbara, can't remember her last name right now. And she stands up and she said, I was married to Admiral Perry's son, John Perry, when he attempted to murder me through strangling also. He went to prison. Got it? Got it. He went to prison. She divorced him. And California law, he got half of everything. So she was on fire with passion. She went to her assemblymen and senators and she got them to co-sponsor a bill that became the reality in California, where if you as a mate, whoever you are, end up in prison, you lose all rights to the split. Brilliant. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. I, think, I that... think we need to do that state by state or town by town, making rules about men and women are equal, regardless of everything. And Dr. Bernie Siegel, who wrote Peace, Love, and Healing, yeah. Medicine, Peace. Wonderful guy. I interviewed him years ago. And he said, the heart is the same color in everybody. 
That's true. <laughs> you, you all bleed the same. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we all bleed the same. You know, it. it's, yeah, ex outstanding words, brilliant words. It's, it's an unfortunate... Um, it's an unfortunate side effect that's taking a place through. Uh, it's not even. I won't call it a side effect. It's a direct action, actually, that that is taking place right now. And I think that we could have a whole, whole another conversation just in this in particular because of so much that's going on, and what needs to be done in empowering individuals, including especially women and blacks and Latinos and and Asians and any anyone Muslims, whoever it happens to be, to say you Jewish, have a voice. Muslim. Palestinians, you know, you uh, have a voice in that we're voice. We're the peacekeepers. Yes, the we need is. peacekeepers everywhere, but we also need non-alcoholic people in the government. I agree with that. I think they should be tested. I do. I agree with that one hundred. But that, and I think <laughs> this, this is just my personal I opinion. <laughs> I, I think they need an IQ test too. <laughs> no, no, they don't need it. It's obvious. Uh, I'm sorry. Then we should but... set a limit. Say, okay, if you're below this, <laughs> we lock the doors. Uh, you don't come in. <laughs> it is. Uh, it's a very obvious, and it has been. I'm sorry. Since Indigenous signed peace treaties that never came to fruition. Uh, yeah, it goes back a long, long ways. Yeah. So we, it, Nancy, we and gotta, and between the Indigenous too. I mean, the Hopis took in every nation. The Hopi nation took in Apaches, I think it was, who were so warring, and they said, as long as you don't do war, you're part of us. The, it's acceptance. and, and it's Total acceptance. Uh, I don't remember if it's Apaches, but yeah, it's it's unconditional love is the root well, of Apaches growth. Apaches were the worst. They were considered the, the feared the most across, yep. the, especially well, the Midwest and the West. Fear is a, you know, if we look at fear and we look at, there's no room, it's a double, it's a duality. Either you fear or you love. There's no in between. Yeah. So we have to know that fear always impedes growth. That's true. Just like tramping on a flower. It will not be good. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'd like to trample something, but we'll just leave that out for right now. <laughs> okay. Uh, I read your mind. It's good. I got it. Um, and so your audience probably did too. <laughs> I'm sure. Well, let's, let's talk about your journey. You, you, okay. Okay. I know that you, um, at what point in your life did you really understand that you had the ability to the, I know we've kind of touched upon it a little bit through what you had said, mm. but at what point in your life did you kind of understand that you had a connection with the universe, that you had abilities that allowed you to be able to see um, see the other side, hear the other side, and understand uh, those that have passed on their journey? And, and how did you become how did you become a psychic detective? Hmm. I think it was several things. One was along the way I had a lot of confirmation from others that this was good uh, as an adult. At 19, uh, the doctors, uh, somebody wheeled in, order was congestive heart failure. I said, no, he doesn't have that. Why don't you do an upper GI series? As a young nurse, 
the doctor listened and did it and asked me how I knew that. And I said, can't you see? I said, he had a hiatal hernia, right? He said, yeah, a very large one. I said, yeah, well. So those pieces, I didn't label. I had no label for any of it over the years until I worked in an acute psych unit in the South Bronx, experimental federally funded grant where we had 12 beds, we had uh, 12 rooms, and we had 10 days to take the worst of the worst in abnormal behavior, acute psychotic or locked up 20 years, murderers, all kinds, uh, criminally insane, and readdress it and see what we can do. That's where I learned that I had something unique from the chief of psychiatry and the supervisor of nursing to everybody and health and hospitals corporation offered me free education up through PhD. I had associates in nursing an RN. I refused all education. I said, why do I need it? If I'm that good, I finally understood that I had a gift. I didn't know what it was. I didn't label it, but the doctors did the psychiatrists did. They hired me. They all wanted me to do the work. So we ended up with less recidivism than ever before in the history of New York State. And Dr. Kaufman was the chief of psychiatry of New York State, asked me to co-research with him. And that's when I walked away because I had funny experiences with him <laughs> in uh, the weekly meetings with the training uh, residents in psychiatry where I never opened up a book, but I taught. And I realized, I not for me, I could, I've got to do something else. And we also had uh, somebody set fire to the unit, et cetera, et cetera. So it was all exciting. It was interesting. And then uh, I decided instead to have a second child with the second husband. <laughs> but my kids are fabulous. Love them. They're wonderful. Kid, and, kids are uh, a gift, are they not? Oh my God, they're my baby. They're fantastic. They are just the best. So uh, I just started doing for myself, knowing I was disabled also and working on it. And I used all the holistic thoughts that my nursing teachers had given me, particularly my first one, Mrs. Norman was great. And I applied it all and I started reading books. I didn't have much money. Uh, my husband, a month, before I gave birth to my son, uh, his job fell apart. He didn't work for a year. That's when I made my own business. Only I didn't call it a business. I just went deep breathing and suddenly the synthesis, I still didn't call it psychic. The synthesis happened where I saw the man I saw in a crib who used to tell me everything when I was a kid in my sleep, in my waking time, he was there. I didn't know who it was fully came back, told me who he was, and I freaked. <laughs> I no, said, it, no! It's, <laughs> that would be a little, <laughs> yeah, that'd be a little <laughs> abrupt. It'd be like a, a unique oh, well, wake-up call. <laughs> shot, well, because of my training and my work, I went, either you're a figment of my imagination or you're a component of me or I've got a great... I don't know what, or you're real. And he would argue with me because he would say, 
if anything, you're a figment of my soul. And I said, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> That's how I would talk. And this was crazy mm. for me, but I, I loved it. It was well, fascinating. What an interesting introduction into this, especially seeing people's maladies and seeing their, from health perspective. Mm. I mean, you, you obviously got into nursing because of, of a, a passion to help people from that perspective. And Florence Nightingale loved her. There, yes, exactly. So you, in taking that to the next level holistically and seeing from a psychic perspective and understanding, before you actually knew it was that, understanding people from a medical perspective just by by looking at them mm -hmm. or seeing them, I mean, that, that must have been, I, I would, to me, I'm stumbling on my words here, that would be, I got into being a cop because I wanted to help people, just like you got into being a nurse and you wanted to help people. Mine was to protect and serve and be there for the person that, that stand up for the people that couldn't stand up for themselves. It was satisfying to me when I made an arrest. It was, you know, I, I felt like I, a job well done. I felt, you know, it, it was my purpose. It was my, that's why I'm here. I'm sure that that had to be overwhelmingly satisfying to you whenever you were right and that you were able to diagnose something from that from that perspective and i i've had in the, the 300 and over well over 300 episodes that i currently have up i've talked to many people who are psychics or mediums i've never had somebody that come on and told me that they could diagnose somebody um, from a medical perspective with those abilities so what a unique approach well i think for anyone listening there's a key for everybody about family and connections. When, when, my, when I was a young nurse and I was trained in holistic well, and I was fascinated by all of it, and I wouldn't use the toothpaste my parents used. I drove to an hour and a half away to the first health food store to get an organic one from France because it had cautions in the regular ones, which meant it goes into the mucous membrane and that goes into the bloodstream. And that's what I was taught. So I applied all of it. My parents thought I was totally weird, except my father wasn't so bad about it. In fact, he was probably curious, but wouldn't talk about it. And one day my mom or my dad, both of them were always sick about something. He had arthritis, she had kidney problems, stones, and whatever. And I, I would say to them, how about trying or doing? And you're not my doctor. You don't know. So I want you all to think about how many times you know something that others around don't get. For me, that was great training to accept everyone's right to do it their own way, whether I like it or not. Same with my kids. They have to choose their own path. I've never wanted to choose it for them because of that. So it really shapes my worldview. And when I work with people, being mentoring, private sessions, workshops, in person, virtual, uh, I'm very careful to give them plenty of room to be completely into their own gifts. Because how would I know? And that goes for everything in life for me. So as I did that, it was a natural transition while I was nursing to see things and to know 
that person's going to die no matter what. He's standing up packing to leave the hospital, but I don't see him leaving. I didn't say die at the time. I just didn't see him leaving. And sure enough, within an hour, he collapsed and died. And so all those pieces that many people don't know what to do with and just shrug it off and go, oh, weird or afraid to know too much. I wanted to know how I knew. And it took me a long time. I think I was 31 when I started my practice as a psychic to put the pieces together. And that was 1975 and 1980 is when the detectives came calling. So it was a progression. But one thing I didn't do was seek work in it. Never. I didn't advertise. I didn't want anybody to come to me except those who uh, word of mouth. I still think word of mouth is the absolute best, like a podcast, which is why I love doing them. Because like Michael, Michael pulls out from his own experience uh, ideas and thoughts that put me in a direction. And I love it. So thank you. Thank you. I mean, I think that your gifts are amazing and that the skills that you use and come in combination with your experience as a holistic healer and as a nurse, it brings a new concept, a new perception to healing. I believe in mind, body, soul, and I believe that we have the ability to take and control our health. And I think that we each, each should have the right to be able, like you just said, have the decision as to how we deal with our health how we manage our health, what we do with our own bodies. I think Da Vinci said it best. Point the light in a direction. We're the hub. Our soul is the hub, and we have many spokes. All we do is point the light in any direction. Uh, I, I remember getting a call from a woman who said, I work with a vet. I'm an animal communicator with dogs, but my horse is in trouble. I said, so? And she said, well, I, I, can't, I don't read horses. I said, why? <laughs> they have a soul. Your dog has a soul. I couldn't understand how you don't see when people say, are you a medium? Do you do that? Everybody's a medium. They don't pay attention. They just don't They're pay not. attention, yeah. Right. But all of it is the same thing. It's the soul's senses. It's the expression of a the soul, which is fused with the universe and the light and the Godhead and the source, creator, whatever, and it's fused with it. And when it's fused with our body mind, we're good to go, even if we're in a restricted body. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah. I was paralyzed. They gave readings. Yeah, let's talk. <laughs> let's, can we talk? Uh, can we touch on briefly? Uh, you, you, sure. you and I had this conversation a little bit prior to us talking or starting mm. this interview. Um, you had some time where you you were in a wheelchair off and on, and mm -hmm. you have some um, some health issues. You were told be, you were going to be paralyzed for the rest of your life. Um, mm -hmm. can, can, and, and we've mentioned it a little bit. Can you help us understand where you were in that point and how it relates to being able to reach out to us holistically? Oh, I have a man to thank for that one. So it was several years after 
I had my second laminectomy, a removal of the tissue of a disc that fell on my sciatic root. I had 12 inches of no working sciatic nerve in my left leg. And I had had the episodes like I was uh, in electroacupuncture by the chief of neurosurgery, who was a friend. And uh, my left leg was non-functional for six weeks, couldn't feel it at all after that. Very strange. So a few years go by, I guess I'm about 29. And they call me into Jackson Memorial Hospital, Dr. Hubert Rossimoff and Dr. Robert Jacobson was now his co-associate in uh, neurosurgery. They were both creative, inventive. Hubert did the formulas for the CAT scan, started the two of them, the, re, uh, the cage for the spine, removing some vertebrae that didn't work, et cetera, or whatever it was, and reconstruction of the spine. They were the formula. They were the creators. So they had found a way to do a 3D look into my spine. And I was the 251st person to have what we now know as a CAT scan. And when they looked at it, they showed it to me and they we read it together. And they said, you have the worst spine we've ever seen in a base. You were born without a disc in L5S1. Many people are. But you have all bone spurs. And you have something called short pedicles. Short pedicles are common congenital deformities in dwarfs only. So I was five foot eight and had always an unstable spine. Robert Jacobson, who I think still runs the largest pain management clinic in Miami, sat by my side and said, look, Hubert and I can remove the base of your spine. You'll be in a wheelchair, but you may be able to get out of it eventually. And we're doing this reconstruction. He said, but let me tell you something. Don't let us touch you. He said, we're great at removing tumors. And this is 1970s, early. He said, however, what you really need, I took silver mind control. I said, what's that? He said, well, it's a way to image self-healing. It's mind over matter, and you need to apply that for yourself because we have no answers for you now. We may, 20 years from now, 30. And he was right, but I didn't do silver mind control. He didn't know I had zero money. I had, uh, at that time, an ex-husband who didn't think child support was important, even though he was a neuro, neurophysiologist, neurologist with a ranch, horses, whatever he wanted, moved out of state so he couldn't uh, be found by law. They couldn't touch him for child support at the time. So there I was, and I had a husband who was unemployed, sex hu uh, second husband. And so I decided that what I could do, because he kept talking about self-healing, you go inside, you see something. I went and lay down on my couch whenever my son had his 10-minute nap, which was a lot for him. And I would envision breathing light in rainbows and colors. Otherwise, I'd be distracted. And as I would breathe deeply, like a baby, belly breathe, first belly, then chest, everything started to synthesize. Everything. So thank you, Bob Jacobson. You were an angel for me. 
you opened up a door I hadn't put together. And I think that's why the medical intuitive work came so easily because I do and have done creative visualization for all my life. And I got very, very detailed and understood emotional chemistry has to be a match to the vision. I have to feel it as if I'm actually there. And that's how I've gotten out of a wheelchair several times. I've been paralyzed three times that I know of. And within three months, I'm walking. Once I had to have rehab. Now I have physical therapy because of the short pedicles. I can't walk very far. But I am gaining on it a lot. And, and that I think that what I relate that to is manifestation um, mm -hmm. to a certain perspective. I know silver mind, the silver, I almost said silver mind control. It's not silver mind control. The silver program, I remember that coming out a long time ago. I remember mm -hmm. investigating it, looking into it, really kind of playing around with it because you used to have these little free things. And that's back when they wasn't really on the internet. It was more like a DVD or a C, uh, uh, the tapes or DVDs and the booklets and things like this. Um, and I remember <laughs> that my wife and I explored that a little bit. And it, it, I think it was a preface to what people call manifesting today, but the visualizing and understanding that we have the opportunity to visualize and manifest what we want in life, whether it be healing ourselves, healing our health, mm -hmm. moving us forward in a different way, or bringing to us what we would like in our lives. Um, so what, I mean, brilliant, brilliant doctor that actually told you we could do surgery, but I think you should look at it this perspective. Well, he was the second youngest neuro, chief of neurosurgery ever in our country. Hubert was the first youngest ever in our country. Mm. They were remarkable, creative, loving, kind people who knew what happened to me because Gil, my ex-husband, was one of his protégés, Hubert's, he worked for at Albert Einstein. So that was done, and they knew it, and they cared. They were so good that's so honest. Yes, it is, and it, that's unique, especially in, in, in any day and age, but especially in this day and age, <laughs> to find a doctor that actually will listen to you and take the time to listen mm -hmm. to you and, and understand mm -hmm. where you want to do it. I, it, I have to... Kudos to the my first surgeon when my oldest daughter wanted me to walk her down the aisle. She looked me square Aww. in the eye when I asked her what she wanted for a wedding present. But we're paying for a wedding. What do you want for a wedding present? She looked me, got down, put a hand on each one of the arms Aww. on my wheelchair, looked me square in the eye, brought tears in my eyes. It still does. And said, I want you to walk me down the aisle because I know you can do it. You know, and we found a, a brilliant surgeon that uh, we went in to see him, the fam, me and the family, because it, it just affected all of us. And um, he goes, well, what, what, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to walk that young lady down the aisle, and then I want to walk her sister down the aisle once that time. He says, okay, we can do that. You Isn't know? that beautiful? And, and it was like, he's not fighting me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> That's I, who you want. Exactly. That's that's in 1991 when I was paralyzed completely. Uh, I couldn't move. I don't think I could lift my head. And uh, three months later was the first neurology appointment I could get. So I walk in and he's looking at my x-rays and he says, stand on your toes. So I stand on my toes. He said, can you turn around? And I said, sure. So I do a little ballet turning, <laughs> a little pirouette or something. 
can you walk back? Can you, he puts me through my paces and he goes, how are you doing this? I said, he said, I'd write a script for everything you do. I said, would you tell your clients? He said, no, I'd have to close my doors. I said, bye. (laughs) I never would see him again until a year later when I got it. I'm a minister also and a trustee of a, a holistic health freedom church. That's what it is. It's not Very about cool. your your other religions. So, and I teach ordinations as a minister for people who are into healing holistically. And uh, I write certifications for aromatherapy, uh, et cetera, doesn't matter. So I get a call from the clients who I'm going to marry the following Saturday. This is a Saturday. And they said, my, and the guy says, my father fell in a bathroom six months ago. He's been in a coma. Would you please come and take a look? I know you work with healing. I said, sure. So I go to Overlook Hospital, which is 20 minutes from me at the time or so, half hour. And I walk in and I'm supposed to meet the couple in the cafeteria afterwards and tell them what I feel about it. So I'm sitting by the father and I'm quiet and I'm talking mentally to him as if we're having this wonderful conversation. And I'm asking questions. And I leave, I go to the cafeteria and the couple say, what? I said, well, let's do Friday a rehearsal at his bedside and I'll wear my clergy robe. And they said, oh, you don't need a clergy robe. We don't care. I said, your father does, he's religious. How do you know? I said, well, that's what I do. And I wouldn't tell them anything. They said he was talking. I said, not with his mouth. (laughs) So (laughs) Friday comes and I have the ceremony. (laughs) I'm from Brooklyn originally. I never, it's like Barbara Streisand. I never left Brooklyn in a park. (laughs) So, (laughs) and then I lived in New York City. You can't get away from that. I'm sorry. (laughs) Uh, That's okay. (laughs) I'm walking here. I'm talking here. So I um, do the ceremony. I get to the part where the bride starts saying her vows. My hand's on the father's head. And she starts saying how much she loves. And the father opens his eyes, looks around and goes, am I at a hospital? I said, yes, you are. I take my hand off his head. And he says, how long am I here? I said, I've got to go. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> not gonna do this and the guy is here. running the, the right i'm out of here and so i'm walking away with my clergy robe and meanwhile the son has run out screaming down the hall my father woke up my father woke up she got him to wake up <laughs> and and the neurologist walks in and looks at me and i go yeah that's me bye it's the same guy <laughs> Touche, touche. Exactly. That's that's funny. That's really funny. And brilliant at the same time. Funny. Um, Oh, well, I didn't control it. There's no way we control it. Not the father, not me. It was his time to wake up. Love woke him up. Listening to the bride. God woke him up. Whatever. And I am a participant in connecting them. I'm like a connector, I guess. You know. Well, and, and and that's an amazing, yeah, you, yeah, hmm. yeah. So, make us, like I said yeah. earlier, you got a gal, you. We got a guy. <laughs> it's you. 
I can't figure this out. Just a minute. I got a guy. Well, really, it's a gal, but I got her. That's amazing. Is it? Um, no, I want a little clip of you doing that. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, almost my mob guy, Al Pacino. Almost. Um, <laughs> let's talk. Yeah, I have to I have to pause for a second. Can we talk a little bit about as a, as a law enforcement officer during my career? I would love to have had you around in certain cases that I had to give us answers, or give us opportunity, or give us direction. How did you get involved in being a police, like a, a, a psychic detective, and helping the law enforcement or police officers or detectives to get involved in those kind of crimes? Did it start from a from a law enforcement perspective, or did it come from a victim perspective? If I can ask. It came from uh, my son taking karate in a class where the teacher was the first female police officer in the town of Mount Olive, but I didn't know that she was. She was just a black belt teaching him. But she read about me somewhere, probably in the town newspaper about animals communicating something, because I, whatever, didn't matter. And she asked me at the end of a class, she said, I'd like to ask you a question. Have you ever worked with the police? And I said, why? And she said, because we had a rape. And as soon as she said the word rape, I saw a photo in my mind and I uh, gave her a description. She said, would you speak to my uh, uh, chief, uh, chief of detectives, my superior officer? I said, sure. Next week, he shows up. I say the same thing. He said, I'd like to come over with my partner tomorrow. I said, sure. So they come over to my office and we sit down. And it is seared in my brain exactly what happened because I could even see it now still. It was very, but I started writing everything down that happened because now I was so curious for years since 1975, what this is and how it happens. And so I describe and they said, we have a problem. I said, what's your problem? Now I didn't think, and I wasn't nervous. I was just responding Brooklyn style to their question. It wasn't that I had confidence I was right. I had no clue. I just wanted to know what's the problem? Why are you even saying those words? I don't know. Why are you even sitting here? <laughs> Beats me. And they said, well, we have two men answering that description. I said, no, you don't. And <laughs> in that tone, I, my Brooklyn again, and I stood up and I walked with a very distinct limp with one leg. And then I sat down and I crossed my arms and I looked at them and they said, how did you know one has a limp? I blurted out my old style of growing up. It's easy, I became him. They went back, told them they knew it was him. It was, it turned out it was a rape murder. I described how that happened. Uh, he he beat her head with a stone. Lovely. And so he was convicted of murder. He confessed right away. So that wasn't the first uh, time I ever caught somebody. I was 20 in my money's hospital or 21, something like that, when I exposed a doctor who had no license. But that's different. And it happened differently. But it also helped me understand how important this is and not having justice when I was raped or whatever, uh, or, or, and almost murdered two different times, blah, blah, blah. Uh, 
I think that's what brought it all together as the interconnectedness between all life. The woman, police officer, cared deeply about what happened. The chief of detectives was open-minded and caring and absolutely wanted to make a difference. His partner was open because the chief was open. And I was open to exploring out of curiosity. So all of us had our own view of why we do what we do. And that started 10 years with him till he retired. He became County Detective of the Year that year. We worked on every case that had either too much, uh, too many leads or none. And I also worked on every unsolved case in the history of the town. That's amazing, actually. And it was fascinating. From, especially that time of that decade that, um, you know, there's a lot yeah. of, um, I, I wouldn't say suspicion, but it wasn't widely accepted for the use no, I of, know. of psychics within yeah. solving crimes. But I have to thank it, Dorothy Allison from Nutley, New Jersey, who passed on years ago. She was well known nationwide and in a state, and she was 45 minutes from where I live now. She was somebody who came out very strongly about what she did with the police. And I believe that because of her, uh, the detectives I started working with in that town passed me on to anybody and everybody. I, they cool. were my reference. Yeah. That's very and cool. I think, you know, they heard Dorothy and they actually believed. And I was on the task force of two of the biggest cases in the history of New Jersey. That's amazing. The other one, actually. yeah, it, it's really weird. I couldn't be on the Lindbergh kidnapping that happened in Jersey because I wasn't born right. yet. But other than that, the three biggest manhunts in that state. And I, what I saw was incredible teamwork in one and none in the other. So other than the two guys I worked with, they were remarkable people, still are, and I'm best friends with all of them. That, that's amazing, actually. You know, it, I love them. I, I think They're that great. The, the, uh, help us understand, uh, I mean, I, I do to perspective, but I think that uh, to help our listeners and our viewers kind of understand the difference between your skills as a psychic and a medium. So I know you said that you were him, so when you were visualizing the one individual that oh. uh, murdered the woman with the brick, you said, and they asked you the question, you said, I, I became him. So what's the difference between the psychic from well, what you do and a medium? Well, that's not mediumship. That's trance mediumship, which I did before with the man in my imaginary so-called. Um, I became a trance medium for three years with him where he would talk instead of me. And I learned how to do that by myself. I have no clue. So transmediumship is you become that, but also mm -hmm. empathy mixed in and psychology mixed in and a whole bunch of other things, right? right? Common sense and questioning and having a conscience and, and having boundaries so that I don't linger with the energy of something else. So mediumship, regular mediumship for me is not, um, participating by absorbing. I have no problem absorbing energy of anything else as long as I have my boundaries in place and know it's not me. 
So I can sit there and, for instance, sit with a detective in this room and I say, you're here for a murder case. Yeah. Bullet to the right uh, temple. How did you know? I said, it just passed through me. So mediumship mm. is a little different for me other than that. That's transmediumship for me. I instantly become the other person to know what they've gone through. That's how I worked on the serial killer case. Mediumship is when a couple sat with me two days after their 24-year-old daughter was goofing around in a Jeep, not driving it, putting her head out, and she ended up rolling it over and dying. And so I'm sitting here with them. Their grief is monumental. I use some anointing tools to just keep them a little bit calmer for themselves so they can breathe, so that I can feel whatever's here. And she instantly, 24-year-old, comes and shows me what she does. She, she used to tap her father with, she'd come right over and tap him hard on the temple. Boom. And so she shows me that. And so I tell them, and then I tell them the next thing she tells me. And then, mm -hmm. and so we have this long conversation for them to know, mom, dad, I know, I know what you're going through. I'll always be with you. And she just talks. And so mom then takes all that. They see me a couple of times, at least, I don't remember. And, and then mom relates to me a lot and she goes to helping parents heal. So does he, which is the nonprofit organization founded by a couple who lost his son. And now it's got thousands of people, mm -hmm. coffee, kitchen table. It's, I think it's free. And everybody in it is somebody who lost their children through any circumstance. They have psychics, they have trauma recovery experts, social workers, yeah, cool. everything. And they are fantastic. Very My cool. friend who I performed the wedding for sits on the board because she lost her niece, her daughter, her only child to cancer at age 24, Carly. And Carly came right through for me about creating uh, a foundation to pick up what she was doing and continue her humanitarian work, which mama does and did. Mm. And now mama sits on the board and helps out and she, her sister is my best friend, who's a trauma recovery expert. So the connections all, uh, for everybody. And every, you know what happens? A lot of the families, a lot of the parents who lost children become mediums for their own sake to know their child on the no. other side. They have to. They need to feel that. Yeah, they need to they that connection. It. Yes. Yeah, yeah miss yeah. that connection. I, I would, I would, in, Inevitably, I'd be doing the same thing. Knock sure. on wood, if I lost my children, you know, anyone. Oh, worst thing. thing. Absolutely, absolutely. And those who cannot, like my friend Peggy, who lost her sister through murder that I worked on in 1980 something three maybe. Um, we still talk, and she lost her son, lost her nephew. She's been through so much, and I told her. We'll make time and let me talk to all of them and tell you how they're doing. Because yeah, cool. she's probably near, probably my age. I don't know. I'm almost 80, so I have no clue. But she's older also. And she needs the help to feel the comfort, even though she's a beautiful believer. She has to be to survive. Sometimes we need a little hand. Absolutely. And that's when I come in. Is, but it's easy to teach people how to do this. It's not, it's emotions that get yeah, in our way. You know that. Yeah. Right? Emotions, emotions tend to uh, put a wall up many, many times. 
or a blockade <laughs> or an obstacle oh. or yes. Um, my biggest quick, lesson. That, we're right. I know that we're we're running a little bit long. Can we? You got a few more minutes. A few. Yes. Okay. Uh, we didn't get a chance to talk about uh, uh, how to talk to our pets. So can I propose with that that you come back on the show and we can have a show dedicated to because I think that's extremely important that we don't well, always take the time to listen to our pets and and understand that they are talking to us. Um, just just it, it it is i know what my dog's telling me my wife it sometimes yeah. irritates my wife i say he wants to go out <laughs> she's going no he doesn't just let him know he wants to go out <laughs> <laughs> so if i can uh i'm creating a one simple intro to animal communication intro to psychic detective etc uh virtual i love giving just little dashes of it so people know and mm. i would love to come back and I would love to just send you the link and invite you to any of them that you ever want to come on, Michael. That would be fantastic. Uh, that would be great. That'd be fantastic. And your wife. Absolutely. I, I would appreciate that. Uh, yes, I have to have my wife. I love my wife. Um, I know. <laughs> 30, 34, married 34 years in September, this September. Oh, 35 years in February. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. He's, He's what? He's everything. You know, when you find the right person, uh, I was married before. Um, that one did not try to kill me. We're still friends, actually. Um, Good. But f when I found Diane, it uh, opened my life to a whole new perspective on life. And uh, It's sure wonderful, isn't it? It is. It's well, we're still friends with his ex-wife. And I've gone to lunch with her and the kids. Uh, we're all friends. Uh, on that side that's the way it should be i've been to too many well, domestics you with, would hope with yeah too many too many too many um okay anyway <laughs> let's talk about it you, i know that you've got some things going on you have two books <laughs> you've got mm -hmm. some classes you've got mentoring you've got so many things that you offer people that they can learn and help themselves as well as possibly help other people can you tell us about that and how to get in touch with you uh it's my name so all you have to do is look it up and it's a dot com and on it uh, you you send a query because i refuse to have a calendar it changes rapidly with people's emergencies i have to be open to helping and as somebody who also does a lot of education in holistic i have a community of thousands who i routinely work with and text as a promise to them for doing the right thing so mentoring one-to-one -one, my favorite and because i have had so much help in this universe from generous hearts i'll say when i needed it in every way including financial i try and keep all my fees at a reasonable price i don't i don't want to stop people from being able to do what they'd like to do, but can't always afford. So it's always an open door. You're so, an amazing individual. It's nancyorlandweber.com. And I'll make sure that there is a, a link in the show notes so that everybody can just click on it and make it easy for them to come find you. Um, thank you. You're an amazing individual. Uh, thank you for sharing your journey with me today on this show. Uh, I, I do look forward to having you back on the show. We have so many Good. more things we can talk about. 
Um, thank you for what you provide to those that are seeking closure. Uh, I think it's a very important aspect that uh, sometimes society mm -hmm. forgets that we need in helping I people know. to move forward in a very positive way. So, Nancy, thank you for being here. <laughs> Michael, it is an absolute honor to be with you. Oh, my God. You are so special. Such a love. Wow. Gonna, I am so grateful. Thank you for reaching out to me. You're going to make me blush. That's okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, <laughs> nice color. Nice, nice color. <laughs> Nancy, again, thank you very much for being here. I really appreciate it. And for, oh, wait a minute. I, I almost missed this. This is one more thing before you go. Do you have any words of wisdom you can share? Even if you think you can't trust yourself, go ahead and trust yourself. Use it. Wear it. Amazing words Listen. of wisdom. Thank you very much. Thank and for you. everyone else out there, you'll find the links to um, how to get in touch with Nancy on the show notes and on the website. And I uh, look forward to seeing you guys next Wednesday as well. Uh, in the meantime, have a great day. Have a great week. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go. Check out our website at beforeyougopodcast.com. You can find us as well as subscribe to the program and rate us on your favorite podcast listening platform.